linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Well, today I'm going to play a continuation of the conversation I had with psychedelic pioneer Gary Fisher that I began in last week's program. So I'll dispense with the long introduction that I gave Gary last week and let you refer back to that program to hear a few highlights of his impressive career, and we'll just get right to the rest of our conversation today. Now, in the uh, first part of today's conversation, you're going to hear Gary tell about two encounters he's had with what surely sounds to me like extraterrestrials. And what's so striking to me about these two stories is the fact that it's Gary Fisher, Ph.D., who is a sober, highly intelligent scientist and one who I greatly admire. And uh, it was only after I'd known Gary for several years that he first told me any of these stories, and they still stopped me right in my tracks. If you think back to a few podcasts ago, you might remember that Terrence McKenna was saying that whenever he was confronted with stories like this, the first thing he did was to take a close look at the person telling the story. And then, of course, he went on to tell his own story about a close encounter he had with an alien spaceship. (laughs) But uh, with Gary, uh, my take on this whole area of inquiry has changed. Uh, I only know... uh, very few rare individuals who even come close to Gary in terms of intelligence, experience, and just plain old common sense. So when he started talking about having an encounter with some form of intelligence that most likely is not of Earth origin, well, I pay very close attention. And in fact, his stories have done much to help me keep my mind open when it comes to things like this. To be honest, I'm not really sure what to think. I can say for sure that there was no hint of a prank in Gary's eyes as he told about these encounters, so I believe him completely. But uh, I've got the advantage of knowing and respecting Gary for a long time, so you'll have to be your own judge of these things, but I do think it wise to keep your mind as open as you can when you encounter stories like this. But first we'll uh, pick up kind of in the middle of a story Gary was telling about himself, and it was a a time when he had taken a very large dose of LSD, and (laughs) he had one of those aha moments where he asked his sitter to write down a very important thought. Let's listen. Uh, So finally I said to him, Bob, come here. And so he came over and said, what? I said, write this down. It's extremely important. He went, oh, okay. He was sitting for you? Yeah, he was sitting for me. Um, because the sitters never took anything. And um, so I said, Gary, I said, never take any of this shit again as long as you live. That's your note to yourself. <laughs> that was a note to myself. And he started to laugh. And he laughed, and he was rolling on the floor laughing. And I thought, what the fuck's funny about that? (laughs) And then I got it. So I started laughing, and I laughed for forever, you know. (laughs) I was like, don't ever do this again. (laughs) I think we've all probably been there. We've done it more than twice. (laughs) Oh, is it? Mm -hmm. Is she still living alone? Yeah. 
And she's got to be 95, 96. 96. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, uh, in that big old house. Now, you used to live close to her, didn't yeah. you? Mm-hmm. That, uh, you, you knew all this. And oh, yeah. Her, so mm-hmm. you went to dinner and all yeah. that. Any good stories from that? What I did want to tell you was that when I... Uh, there's a, a psychiatrist by the name of John Rosen. And his book is called Direct Analysis. And he used to get right in there with patients. Amazing man. Fearless. Totally fearless. Well, I went to see him work uh, with a patient uh, in Scottsdale one time. And so how I got to visit these other people, I don't have the memory of how that connection happened. But these people were um, testing Edgar Casey's stuff. Mm. Do you know Edgar oh, Casey? Oh, sure, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And because uh, Charlie looked on the internet and said that Edgar Casey doesn't have anything to say about aneurysms. And um, but I so I was very interested in them, and they lived in an old Spanish house. And so you know we were sort of chatting. There were a number of people there. And um, so there was one guy that I kept looking at, and um, there was something about him that just wasn't right, and there was something amiss. And um, so finally I went out on the patio, because I could never talk to him alone, so I went out in the patio. This is at Laura's house? No, at uh, the... Uh, husband and wife who were studying Casey's oh, okay. stuff oh, okay. in, in Scottsdale. Okay. And so I went out and he came out and the first thing I said, which I didn't realize I was going to say it, I said, you're not from this planet, are you? And he said, well, how do you know? And I said, well, I can just tell you're not quite put together physically right. And he said, well, nobody ever picks it up. He says, you're the first person who's ever picked it up. And I, and I said, uh, you come from Southern, so I'm getting chills up my spine now. And, um, and so I said, well, you come from Southern, uh, some other planet. He said, yeah, we came on a mother uh, ship and then uh, you're taken down and, and you're given a, quote, physical body so that you can, um, you know, go amongst people who are studying interesting things. And that's why he was... Uh, finding out about Casey and all the work they were doing. Uh, so we talked for at least 40 minutes. And um, that was one of the first time, I, the only time I ever met a person that um, I immediately knew was not of this planet. You just had that sensation. Mm-hmm. And he mm-hmm. confirmed it, mm-hmm. interestingly. Yeah. The other time when... I was out in the desert and I had gotten um, telepathic communication <clears throat> to keep going on this trail towards 29 Palms, which I did. And then the car turned over on the side of the road automatically, so I parked there, got out, crossed, uh, crossed over, and started walking. My, you know, I, and it was getting hot. And uh, so I was uncomfortable. So I sat down under a tree and all of a sudden I got up and I got a message. We didn't tell you to sit down. We told you to keep on going. So my legs just was going, you know, and so I was going with it. And uh, so I could see this thing coming out of the horizon and it was a, um, a light. 
and it would come like this, and then it would stop. And then there were uh, um, jets from Edwards Air Force Base that you would see that was coming out. And, and th this thing would just stay and, and hover in midair. Like a light ball kind of thing? Yeah, just like a light. And they would come close, and then all of a sudden the thing would disappear and appear up here somewhere without going there. And um, so uh, then the jets would start approaching them. And so the, and it would move again. And then I got the telepathic communication. Well, we're having interference with these jets today, so we can't land, um, you know, for you today. So. So you had a, a essentially a, a close encounter, uh, and it was almost really close. Mm -hmm. Now, an experience like that, I I totally decided long ago to keep my mind wide open to these mm -hmm. things because. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I look at us as, as like fish, uh, you know, that don't know what water is, or birds that don't know what air is. We're, we've discovered that we're swimming in 90% of this universe is dark energy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, we're swimming in something, and we, you know, we're, we don't know what's going on. And so I've decided that uh, I have to admit that I don't, I don't know about these things. And I've never had this kind of an encounter, but I have talked to other people that have, and they, they seem very real. Of course, what um, activated that memory was you're talking about UFOs and so forth. And funny, sometimes very funny stories. This one guy always wanted to have an experience with a UFO, and he lived out in the desert, out in the in the low desert. Um, and so he was always very interested in that. And so finally, one night. Um, um, he's, uh, the uh, TV kept going off and so he'd turn it on and go off and then the lights would go on and off and so forth so he thought well, what on earth is going on so he ch checked his um, electrical box and so forth and nothing happened and all of a sudden there was this light intense light above his house and uh, so he went right over to the window and the spaceship was landing in his yard and so he ran and got under the bed and said, God, I'll never ask to see another spaceship as long as I live. If you'll have it, just go away. <laughs> <laughs> and my kids love that story because they laugh and giggle. Well, that sounds like me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I heard Terrence McKenna tell a story one time, and he had gotten, by the time I got to, to go to his workshops, he'd... He'd been through the UFO thing where he'd been following them, and then he decided that they're all hoax. And and uh, he was into this, uh, well, check the person that's telling the story. And he went into this whole thing, well, there are people, women in trailer parks who watch daytime TV. And and then he get, goes through this whole thing, and he gets down to the end, and he says, but, you know, the UFO that I saw parked in La Chorera when we were down there, he said, now that one was real. <laughs> so, what, what, you know, just... Do you have any clue what you think they'd be doing? I mean, why why would extraterrestrials uh, come well, down? Well, I, I asked this guy that question. Of course, I said, well, why are extraterrestrials investigating the planet? He said, well, we're trying to find people who are have uh, have uh, advanced brain development, who uh, can sense different things. 
and that they're, he says, well, you're one of them and you're one of these new generation of people. And he said, we are looking for people like that to see if there's enough people like that in any one particular place where we could come down and actually share information that we have. And there's a place um, in South America that I'd heard about where there are a number of these uh, sightings and this whole group of people that were living down there. But that's been years ago. I don't remember the detail. Yeah, but that's I, what I've they heard were doing. about the South American, and uh, Good. that, that uh, within the last few years, there's rumors of uh, some caves that have uh, yes. something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that that's that's those stories are still current. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Now I would assume they'd have to come in as infants and grow their bodies. They couldn't come in fully uh, developed, so they'd have to go through childhood and everything. No, they can come in, and then they they take on human form. Is that like a walk-in that they talk about? Or or can they just materialize a human form? They can materialize in human form. That's what this guy did. Mm -hmm. He just materialized. You know that that, uh, ten years ago, I probably wouldn't have had this discussion because I was much more of an engineer (laughs) in my head. But uh, I think one of my big uh, aha moments in my life about uh, thinking about the beyond actually came uh, a story that you told when we were riding up to Kathleen's salon one time and you told about when you flew to Mexico and Tim Leary picked you up and you're yeah. driving down and mm-hmm. you stopped and, and uh, mm-hmm. the reason I'll have you tell the story so that, that now I've prepped it so everybody's going to hear it but the reason that struck me so forcefully is that up until that moment, I had you pegged as a hard-nosed scientist, materialist, rationalist, reductionist, mm-hmm. and because I mean you work in that field, you don't mm-hmm. you don't let me get away with much bullshit. I mean you humor me some, but uh, that was such a disconnect for me to hear somebody whose mind I respect mm-hmm. to talk about reincarnation, mm-hmm. and that's when I started reading tuning into my own mm-hmm. more but the story I thought was spectacular and I've been uh, longing for a lifetime like that one that you had on the beach there <laughs> yeah uh, going uh, my body all uh, started responding first all and this you're riding t- in, the, in, the in the jeep and I was in the back seat and all this tingling that was going on and my body was just like Ooh, it was just like on fire so I yelled at Tim to stop and so he stopped because he had come in with the jeep to pick uh, us up, and so I jumped out of the jeep and started taking, you know, my clothes off and ran to the beach. Looked down at the beach, and that was the exact space that I had been two years before in a psilocybin session, and I had been a fisherman there, and I had the most idyllic life you can imagine. It was just wonderful. I fished, I ate fruit, I did nothing enjoyed the sun I mean head was empty you know it was wonderful and then this uh, during the session this was with uh, Sewell Simon during the session then uh, this energy came and started pulling me away and I kept saying no 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 I don't want to leave I want to stay here I want to stay here forever so it came a second time and a third time it just came and shook the shit out of me so I said, I'm coming, I'm coming. So I went on. But that was all in Ziwataneho. And two years later, that was the place. 
that I had been a fisherman. Yeah, the, one that, the same vision, the same images mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. we'd seen on psilocybin. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Uh, some sort of foreshadowing. In a movie, that would be foreshadowing, I guess, mm-hmm. in a life it is. Mm-hmm. Too, that uh, another another thing that Mary C and I have these conversations because I I keep saying oh, you know I really hope there is no afterlife because I'm just tired of being aware you know I just want to sleep for a, three or four uh, billion years hundred billion years you know but uh, I get tired of being aware and she just laughs and says well you can't get out of it and uh, you t- one time I, I uh, you you mentioned uh, you said oh I can remember my incarnations back to a single celled organism <laughs> I asked you what it was like and you said well boring <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't sound like the life on the beach was boring even though uh, it wasn't right. a life oh I know it was wonderful it was just this wonderful warm sunny gorgeous water, eat fish and fruit, and uh, basically don't do anything. So is that what really we humans should be doing, just enjoying the... Well, those are called, you know, in the the esoteric world, those are called sleeping karmas. Mm. And you'll run into people, um, and it's a person who's happy all the time. Everything goes well for them. Uh, They don't have any hysterics in their life. And they're having sleeping karmas. Mm. They just come in, ah, tree lags. Wow. Mm-hmm. Maybe the next one we can do this together. <laughs> I'm all for a little sleeping karma today. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that, I know you don't really like talking about your days with Tim Leary, any, so I won't, won't push you too hard on that. But uh, uh, Yeah, we're not probably going to talk about him. Well, he doesn't. He gets enough people to talk about him. So, uh, yeah. But around that that time, not about him, but of, of the events that took place, because you were moving around the world with that crew, and that mm-hmm. was uh, really the go-go psychedelic 60s and all, so uh, of that whole milieu that you were in, because you went from academia and research to uh, uh, Zihuatanejo, and then you went somewhere in the Caribbean. We went, uh, first of all, to um, um, Antigua, uh, Ralph and the other people had already gone to um, Dominica because this this guy (laughs) told told them to come to Dominica because he was doing LSD research. The government was very um, glad to have them do the research because they were going to use it in their prisons and in their schools and so forth and so on. And so... So they went to Dominica, and I was getting ready, you know, packing up to go. And um, so what happened, they got in Dominica, and the Dominican government uh, arrested them all because this guy had said, people from the United States who have lots of money are coming to help overthrow the government. And so that's what they're here for, is to overthrow the government. And of course, the guys from you know Newton said, "What? You know, we're going to overthrow the government?" And this guy who was making the contact was crazy as a hoot He wanted to overthrow the government, so that was the end of that. So they were pushed out of Dominica right away, and they went across. And the first island was uh, Antigua, and uh, so. Getting to Antigua was a nightmare. The plane kept breaking down. Uh, we had to go to New York, 
and then we lost part of the luggage in New York going from one um, um, terminal to the other. Uh, and we had three kids, two kids in diapers. Yeah. And um, so then we finally got to Puerto Rico and then we had to change planes again. The plane we were getting on blew up as we were going out to it. The thing got on fire. You While know. you're walking out yeah. to it? <laughs> it's about the time I turn around and go home by yeah. boat. Time to go home, right. So it was weird. So we had a terrible time getting out of uh, Puerto Rico and finally ended up in Antigua. So we arrived there. And we were just exhausted because we'd been flying for hours and hours and hours. And so we got in there and I said, well, I'm with the group with Timothy Leary. And if you can call them, they'll come and get us. And he said, oh, no, they're being deported. (laughs) (laughs) They're being deported. He says, yes, and you can't come in the country. Uh, You have to, you know, take the next flight out. Well, we had no money. You know, no tickets, no money, nothing. And here we were in Antigua. And uh, so finally, we just kept sitting there and sitting there and sitting there. And so finally, they called uh, the attorney who was representing uh, Leary's group in Antigua. And they came and did something, give them money, I suppose. And then we were, we got our papers to get deported from there. But... We got out of the airport and got to the hotel, but uh, yeah, that was the whole story about Antigua. So, so you really didn't spend any time doing research. Well, you no, uh, we didn't really do anything except nothing, and because the police would come out every day. Was interesting about the police, like the guys would go somewhere during the day. Well, I forget where we would go, but the women would be just left there. And one of the women was pregnant. She was about eight months pregnant. And so they would come. And so the police chief finally said to them, well, they would keep giving us edicts. So you have to be off the island by sundown tomorrow. Sundown would come and we'd still be there. So the police would come out again. And so finally we were gone. The men were gone. And so one of the gals, a pregnant gal, said, well, will you take us to the market? Because, uh, you know, we need to get some food. So they got in the Jeep and went to the market. And they took them to all these markets to get food. And um, so they went to the chief of police and said, these are the nicest people. They always welcome us in. They always make us tea and feed us. And they're wonderful people. And so if you want them in jail, because the jail was full of crazy people. I mean, the jail was like a barbaric place. Uh, It's all the mentally ill that were there. He says, if you want them in jail, you go get them. And then you take them to jail, because we're not. We all will resign if if you instructed us to do it. So we... Well, that, that's what I would call goodwill ambassadors. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. So, yeah. so somebody rounded up the money to get you all up to Millbrook from there, I guess. Right? Where did you come no, back to California? No, we went to um, from there. We went to Guadalupe. Oh. And so we were going to settle there, and uh, that never happened. And um, it was—it's a French island. Mm-hmm. And very different than Antigua, which is English. 
But, you know, we had wonderful experiences. We would get picked up by some black people, get to know us, and then they'd take us to only where black people were doing with these uh, uh, steel drum bands. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God, it was just incredible, beautiful. Were you guys doing any LSD then, or was it just... uh... Well, we had a lot of... uh, (laughs) One of the things I know that happened is that we dug holes in the sand and then buried a lot of it, and then the the uh, high tide came in, and, and we didn't know where it was. <laughs> so we lost all that. So there may be some sandos vials floating around in the ocean. In the and then and then on one flight that we were on, we had all the stuff uh, uh, stuffed inside uh, children's toys, stuffed bed, and that um, we were watching the. Um, uh, the escalator go up with the bags and that one teetered at the top and then fell all the way down so it all smashed (laughs) (laughs) I was going to Hawaii to work and so people from LA we got all our money together to buy LSE so we'd have a stash of it forever and the guy from LA went to Vancouver I remember that he sort of walked across the border. Then he took a, fri- a flight to Frankfurt, Germany. And then somebody else went from Frankfurt, Germany to Switzerland, and they got the LSD, and they were in the vials. And uh, so this took months and months and months to happen. So by the time I got back to L.A., of course, I was in Hawaii, so they said, we'll just send it. Well, they put it in all this... I don't know, it was a fluffy kind of substance that they put it in, these little vials. I didn't know. I thought the LSD was all at the bottom of the box. So I went into this bathroom, and I still remember the bathroom in this old abandoned hotel in Hilo, I mean a hospital uh, that we used as our headquarters. And I was dumping all of this foaming stuff in the toilet and flushing the dog. I dumped, I flushed all the LSD in the toilet. I laughed so hard. I was sore. <laughs> After all that money and traveling and, and I dumped it all down the toilet. You know, there is a sign that that, that uh, extraterrestrial knew that he had the right guy with you because only an advanced soul could laugh at something. <laughs> oh, God, that was so hilarious. Oh. Well, you know, I've, I've found in my life that the eventually all of my great tragedies become really funny stories. Mm-hmm. And the, the shorter, the more I can shorten the time between the tragedy and the story, the happier my life is. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you really cut to the chase on that. <laughs> you, uh, did you ever cross paths with Alan Watts? Oh, yes. That, uh, he's yeah. somebody that really fascinates me. That, uh, did you know him at all? Oh, of course not. No, I, oh. I, I, you know, I, I only found out about Alan Watts maybe 20 years ago when I bought a set oh. of his tapes from his oh. son. But uh, uh, I'm a latecomer to this whole thing. Yeah, I'm a Irish Catholic Republican lawyer <laughs> engineer <laughs> that was 42 years old before his first psychedelic experience. <laughs> you oh. were done with all this when I started, so oh. I, I never had the pleasure of meeting him. But uh, uh, I've enjoyed his tapes. But uh, Alan was funny, funny as can be. You know, he was a real comedian. He was a pixie. You know, he was uh, uh, just a pixie. And he and Mary Jane, the woman that he lived with for years and years, had gone to Maria Sabina and had uh, taken the mushrooms. 
And uh, so Alan said to Mary Jane, because they hadn't been married, they'd lived together for years, that this would be a perfect time to get married. <clears throat> and so they went through the marriage ceremony with Maria Sabina. Wow. When they came back to the United States, um, Mary Jane was just totally cold to Alan and, and totally turned off to everything and finally said to Alan, we're going to have to get a divorce because we're totally different people and we have nothing in common and this is not, never going to work and so I want a divorce. And so he said, well, we can't get a divorce in this country. He said we would have to go back to uh, Mexico because that's the only place where our marriage is valid. Is our marriage isn't valid in California. And she said, are you sure? And he said, yeah, I'm sure. Never heard a word. Never, she never brought it up again. <laughs> but just this image, you know, of yeah. being married. No. She couldn't deal with it. Mm -hmm. yeah. But they lived on the houseboat then. Did you ever get up to the houseboat to see them up there? No, I don't remember. I remember one houseboat in South Salida. Well, that's where his houseboat was, South Salida. Mm -hmm. Where I had met him most of the time was at uh, uh, Dennison's house in Hollywood, the house that overlooked the lake. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, Henry and... Um, uh, um, what's her name? Ruthie Dennison. Ruthie Dennison now has her... She has an ashram out in the desert. And I don't know if Henry died or not. But Alan was just funny. I mean, he was so funny. That's the first time I've really heard that about him. You know, you hear all his serious talks, but uh, you don't hear the pixie. Oh, yeah, he was a pixie. <coughs> and uh, at one dinner, this very proper lady said, Well, Dr. Watts, what do you hope to gain from your next experience with LSD? And Alan said, Another book. <laughs> no, just like that. <laughs> of course, she was so shocked. <laughs> oh, he was funny. He was did did he ever meet uh, Aldous Huxley too? I mean, because I know that you and the Huxleys live near each other, so you right. probably saw them frequently. Did, mm -hmm. did Alan Watts and Aldous Huxley ever get together? You know, I don't know. I have to ask. Laura. Not with you and there. No, I don't remember Alan being there. I'm sure he must have yeah. been. Yeah, because everybody uh, ended up at the Huxleys. How did how did you meet the Huxleys? I think it was because it was through my mentor, Nick Shawalas, and I think that his entree was from uh, two husband and wife that were alcoholics and had taken LSD in Canada for alcoholism, and it completely dried out and became forerunners of sponsoring LSD. So that's my guess. But I know it was early because I've known Laura for forever. I always remember Aldous was so dry. He had this very English dry sense of humor. And so Aldous said to me, uh, no, Laura said to me, well, Gary, what do you do when you're not busy being a psychologist? And Aldous said, probably enjoys himself. <laughs> yeah, he was um, very, very tall and couldn't see at all. I heard that. He, he had uh, real thick glasses. Oh, yeah, very thick glasses, yeah. 
there's some wonders. Uh, I've got some great pictures of him around somewhere. I don't know where. Someday I'd like to see those. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you've been to Laura's house. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's pictures of all this everywhere. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really a, an amazing house. It's Isn't it? A lot of you can just feel all yeah. kinds of mm-hmm. spirits in mm-hmm. that building. Yeah. And uh, Laura's best best friend was Ginny Pfeiffer. And uh, Ginny's house burned down when Laura and Aldous's house burned down in that Hollywood fire. Mm-hmm. And so Ginny brought, bought this other house that Laura still lives in. <clears throat> and then shortly after that, Aldous got cancer. So they, because they were going to rebuild. And um, they never rebuilt. Didn't he lose a manuscript in that fire? Oh, he lost all He lost everything, paper. but a, a one that had been unpublished that he was working Oh, yes. Lots and lots and lots of things. I don't know how you recover from something yeah, like that. Yeah, did, did he get depressed after that, or did he come no. through? No, he never... He never got... No, he had a tremendously clear awareness. Mm-hmm. And very British. Mm-hmm. Proper British gentleman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, he was introduced to... Uh, uh, well, he, st- he used psilocybin, I think, didn't he? Mescaline. Mescaline, that's right. Mm-hmm. Through uh, Humphrey Osmond, is that how mm-hmm. he first? Mm-hmm. And then I heard that uh, Al Hubbard uh, brought uh, LSD into his life, too. Or I don't know about that. Myron would know. I think that's what Myron told me. I'll have to go back and check. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. But uh, at dinner parties and all, Huxley, did he, was he just quiet or did he put forth? Uh, well, what, he was very interesting <clears throat> because lots of people came to visit. And Aldous was extremely inquisitive about everybody. So he would get the person talking about themselves and then Aldous would ask more questions and more questions until the evening was over and everybody left. And then the people that left would think, well, we didn't. He didn't say anything about himself. He never mm-hmm. talked. We did all the talking, but that was his genius. Mm-hmm. He got everybody to talk. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, have you read the book Island? Oh, actually, three or four times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and actually, that's the one that I've heard uh, Laura on many occasions tell people that that's the one he yeah. considered his, his yeah. most important book. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've read uh, most of his books, but Island mm-hmm. is. Uh, and you know, Island doesn't have a happy ending either. You know, right. gunfire in the distance. Mm-hmm. But, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a very important book. I heard. You know, I have I've I've got two groups of friends that relative to Leary, uh, <laughs> that that met Leary. The ones that knew Leary when he was Tim Leary, and then those that knew him at the end of his life. And uh, the people that knew him in the last five to ten years that were hanging around his Hollywood mm-hmm. uh, apartment or home there. Uh, are devotees. Mm-hmm. Everybody that knew him before he moved to Hollywood mm-hmm. really doesn't want to talk about him too much and mm-hmm. like to move on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, I won't. I won't <laughs> tell you what's in this paper that Myron wrote. But when you read the comparison that he does of Leary, that you'll you'll laugh out loud. <laughs> I guarantee. <laughs> I don't want to ruin it for you, mm-hmm. but. Uh, you know, I think it was maybe three or four years ago, uh, we were having a phone conversation, and I said something to you, because uh, I know how you feel about it, and I said, well, you know, being the devil's advocate here, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation if it mm-hmm. wasn't for Tim Leary. 
and without missing a beat, you just said, oh, yes, we would. <laughs> and that shut me up. <laughs> but I think that the people that knew him in the last four or five years, he either mellowed or something, but uh, they had a decidedly different impression than the people that knew him when he was younger. So, uh, yeah. you know, he, he lived several lives. Yeah, and of course, um, he... Um you know, at the very end, I I drove Laura over to that farewell for him when he was dying, um, and um, because I don't I don't remember why, but anyway, that's why I went because I certainly didn't want to see him, and I really didn't see him. I just said hello, but didn't talk to him. But his son, um, uh, oh God, because I couldn't mm. Cause his daughter was Susie, and of course she committed suicide mm -hmm. in prison. And that was the first time that he had seen Tim in years and years and years. He had totally, you know, was so angry at him. Because he was a terrible father. Just a terrible father. Yeah. Well, he was a drunken Irishman with a silver tongue. He wasn't a very good husband either. Oh! <laughs> How many wives did he have? Four? Several. Several, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, it's... it's uh, yeah, I, I have to admit that I I am I can argue both sides of the street about whether he did a good thing or a bad thing, you know, but all of the people involved in research at the time, you know, he did a pretty bad thing for them. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you have a child who's schizophrenic or has autism right now, he did a horrible thing mm -hmm. because otherwise that research would still have been complete. Well, it's hard to know, isn't Possibly. it? Yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, of course, he got all the young people involved. And which is exactly wrong. You know, he said that he only wanted to be two things. He wanted to be rich and have to shut this door. Mm -hmm. And the last interview I did with you had a leaf blower in the background. Right. <laughs> yeah, uh, he wanted to be rich and he wanted to be famous. And so um, those were his two goals in life. Really? Mm -hmm. And um, it didn't matter to him how he became famous. I remember one time Alan uh, Watts were in a group talking and Tim was going to be doing this thing at Santa Monica Civic and Tim kept wondering what he should have on the marquee and Alan said, well, why don't you just tell him like it is, just say, Tim Leary, the second coming. <laughs> but, you know, he really saw himself as uh, uh, the leader and that he would, uh, but oh, he would uh, double cross anybody at any time for anything if it was in his best interest. Yeah. He had no morals. And you wanted to spend a lot of time with him, really, uh, between. No, because he was, um, you could never have a conversation with him. And I said that to somebody one time, and they said, Tim never had a conversation with anybody. Hmm. Never. He just talked. Well, um,. He would talk, change the subject, uh, drink gin, um, you know, get pretty high, but he never talked. Hmm. He was very apersonal. Hmm. Well, you know, maybe that's what changed at the end, and he did all his talking in the last three or four years, and that's why so many people are uh, devoted to him today. Oh, I know there's so many people. Well, I, I've, I've, I've received some pretty hateful email because I made a, a comment here or there uh, about him. And, uh, well, that's nice. 
Well, yes, it's nice to know he can engender emotion. Yeah. But, uh, no, I've I've decided to make a point of not make a point of. I'm I'm not doing including any leery stuff in all these podcasts. There's mm-hmm. so much leery stuff out there. You can mm-hmm. go dig that out. But mm-hmm. I did see a video of the uh, his archives. It's in two storage sheds and three or four hundred boxes, well indexed and cataloged, with every piece of paper that he's ever touched. His grade school report cards. Everything mm-hmm. is right. death mask, <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, which uh, might have uh, a few valuable pieces of uh, paper in there. One of being is uh, Myron, after he uh, kicked him off the board of the institute, said he never really had a good closure with it. So he came back and wrote a real long letter to him about what he was doing wrong. Myron did. Myron did, yeah, <clears throat> but Myron didn't have a copy of it anymore. Mm. So maybe he still exists in an archive, hopefully. I'd love to hear what Myron had to say. Well, Myron wouldn't have said anything flattering, so the letter would have gotten burned. Oh, now now that will be an interesting thing. Uh, Someday an archivist Mm -hmm. should uh, pull that out. Do your kids still have any memories of those days? Do they ever bring it up? The only thing, no, the two youngest don't. They don't remember. But the uh, the, the middle one, the little Buddha baby we called her, and um, but uh, I remember when we got back to Dana Point and we had a three bedroom, two bath house and a den and so forth, typical uh, house in in Dana Point, which was a tract house, and so Bess was so cute, she had these fat little hands, and so she woke me up in the morning, and I opened up, you know, like, what Bessie, because she. We got back at like 2 o'clock in the morning or something. And she said, are we all going to live in this tiny little house? And she went like this with her fingers. This tiny little house. She didn't remember the house. She just remembered the... Millbrook. Well, you know, looking back on those days, I, from where I am now, I couldn't imagine taking my family around doing those things but I did things like that with my family too mm-hmm. we do things when we're younger that are just uh, beyond our scope to mm-hmm. imagine now mm-hmm. so, yeah kids are very adaptable yeah mm-hmm. well who else uh, of that era you know the Aldous Huxley Alan Watts uh, were, were there other uh, psychedelic type luminaries that would come in and out of the world or did you pretty much uh, drop out of all that after you left Millbrook well after I left Millbrook I guess I worked at the um, at the prison for a while I think that maybe was the sequence uh, and then after that I went to Hawaii mm. and worked for Peace Corps. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I was always into adventure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a lot of stories of people in the 60s that melted down and, you know, became, you know, wards of the state. Uh, I've never really heard any anything that's documented. I've... You know, there's only only one LSD crash I've heard of, and it was one of the members of Pink Floyd. But uh, did you encounter people who just went crazy and never came back after they took LSD? No, I worked with some students um, as a psychotherapist. I would take them back, regress them to where they 
turned off during sessions and took them back to that period of time and then brought them forward and forward and forward. So I treated a number of people that had taken psychedelics that got stuck mm. and remained stuck, mm-hmm. but got them... You could unstuck. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. And what about age groups? Uh, you know, right now there's... Uh, I don't think it's any different now than it was in the 60s. You know, there are kids in their junior high school that are taking LSD, and uh, a lot of them with no guidance, no sitters, no nothing, uh, which I consider pretty dangerous, not so much from the physical standpoint as the emotional standpoint. Mm-hmm. That you, you have any uh, feelings about how old? Uh, it, does it make a difference if somebody is uh, 15 or 50? or? Uh, I think they have a better chance of um, getting into the experience the younger they are. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, Aldous started, was it Aldous who started saying that uh, kids at a certain age should be given LSD? Well, in, in Ireland, it's the moksha medicine, which was LSD. Right. So, I, yeah, I would say he was uh, an advocate of that, at mm-hmm. least in, in the novel. I don't know mm-hmm. if I've read it right. anywhere else. Well, but that was his... Yeah. That his, was his platform. That was his platform. Yeah, as I recall, Island, there were certain periods in someone's life, but the right. first one seemed right. like at, at puberty is uh, mm-hmm. from the first time. Right, right. And uh, that's right. With, with proper guidance, I, mm-hmm. I still think that's a, mm-hmm. a good method. I'm afraid I'm going to have to bring this conversation to an end for now. From uh, here, we just seem to <laughs> kind of, we, well, we kind of descended into a little gossip, a few personal stories from each of us, and uh, probably way too much politics, uh, just like everybody else's conversations. Uh, I guess what I'm getting at here is that uh, I hope you're getting the feeling that uh, these great heroes of early psychedelic research, people like Gary Fisher, uh, Gene and Myron Stolaroff, Ann and Sasha Shulgin, They're all people that uh, are much like you and me. Granted, uh, they've accomplished things far beyond anything I can aspire to, but uh, what I'm talking about is uh, what they're like as people. You know, as as you've most likely figured out by now, these these wonderful folks are are not all that different at their core from you and me. You know, uh, ultimately, I think that this deep-seated awareness of the true commonality of our human experience is one of the great gifts of psychedelic experiences. I've not yet heard uh, or read what I consider a a clear definition of what it is that happens to a person once she or he makes a conscious intention to push their awareness beyond that psychedelic threshold, but as you well know, uh, once you've had that experience, Whether it was good or a bad experience, uh, once you return from the realm of the other, well, I I can't put it into words either, but as uh, my friend Tony Rich once said, we do know what we know. And uh, in a way, that can uh, become a very slippery slope, but uh, in the end, the one thing that keeps a psychedelic experience from morphing into just another uh, organized religion of some sort is the fact that uh, it is, in the end, an experience. Like Ken Kesey often said, you're either on the bus or off the bus. But the thing is that uh, all of us guys who have decided to ride the bus have also uh, continued to have a great deal of love and respect for those who choose otherwise. 
You know, in the end, everybody takes their own trip. And uh, in my case, I've found that the love trip is uh, much more enjoyable than its opposite, uh, the fear trip. Now, that's a bad trip, don't you think? Well, what kind of a crazy hyperlink patchwork of thoughts got me from uh, a conversation with Gary Fisher about the proper age for a person to have her or his first psychedelic experience to love versus fear. <laughs> uh, well, I hope this lack of focus doesn't bode ill for the rest of the year, which, uh, by the way, is this is our third year in podcast land. That's right. Even though this is only podcast number 98, I am nonetheless in my third year of podcasting from the Psychedelic Salon. And for those who are joining us for the first time today, I hope you'll subscribe to this channel through iTunes, Google, Yahoo, or any of the other services. And that way you'll always be able to look back and download some of our earlier programs in addition to being notified of each week's new one. And if you want more information about this or any of our previous podcasts, just go to our Notes from the Psychedelic Salon blog, which you'll find at www.psychedelicsalon.org. And uh, there you'll find links to books, papers, and other relevant information about our guests here in the salon. But our most important guest, I think, and I hope you'll agree, is you. You know, without you, well, <laughs> I'd be sitting here talking to myself, I guess. Not that that's a bad thing, but uh, it's so much nicer knowing that you're here, too. And I really appreciate you taking the time to join me here each week. And in particular, I want to be sure to thank seven wonderful people who have truly warmed my heart. You know, for the past two years, on average, there have been about one person a month, a little bit more, who has uh, made a donation to help pay the expenses associated with these podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon. And believe me, uh, those donors have had a, a big influence on me, uh, particularly at the times when I, <laughs> I feel a little like slacking off. But uh, I wasn't prepared for the fact that uh, in the week that has gone by since the last time we were together here in the Salon, there have been seven donors. That's right, seven. And several of them have made donations before, which is uh, far and above the call of duty, you guys. So I hope everyone in the salon sends a little positive karmic energy out to these generous souls. And as always, my policy is to never reveal the full name of donors or email authors, just in case it might cause some issues back in the default world. So Albert C., David R., Corey H., Eugene R., Michael M., Brandon F., and Vipal P. Or is it Vipal? V-I-P-A-L. New name for me. I like it. Anyhow, thank you all. Thank all of you so, so very much. And may all your days be merry. And uh, now for a, a little sampling of a couple emails that have come in recently. Uh, Luke writes, I found your latest podcast, Energy Drinks and Other Stuff, to be particularly illuminating and synchronistic. After listening, I did a bit of research and found that the Halpern Gate and John Halpern ordeal tied a, in a bit closer to home than I expected. Growing up in Topeka, Kansas, my little league football coach was Picard's attorney. I recall not being too fond of him, but in retrospect, I think it was the game, not the coach, that I was displeased with. <laughs> I, I didn't have a positive Little League experience of any kind either, Luke. Uh, he goes on. Furthermore, I would frequently travel to... Wow, I don't know where this place is. 
Wamigo, W-A-M-I-G-O, Kansas, for disc golf festivals. And remember, driving by the old missile silos that were apparently a key site to this unfortunate story. It's too bad that someone who looked to transform a symbol of American imperialism, missile silos, into beacons of next-generation consciousness is perceived as a social criminal. And then Luke goes on to say, Unrelated to the energy drink podcast, I would like to thank you for the tremendous work you've done and the sincere positive ramifications it has had on my life. I view it as a privilege to have been able to listen to podcasts such as Reproducible Experiences on Different Entheogens before ever venturing into those spaces. Your resources have opened me up to ideas and philosophers whom I never would have found independently. I also received the following uh, in an email from a saloner named Cat. You just gave me the biggest smile. I can't express to you how much I enjoy your work. I was listening while working on my computer, thinking how I would love to send you an email right when you expressed in your podcast that you'd never get email from women. Laughing out loud. (laughs) Then, of course, you realize that many women listen. So, the delightful serendipity impressed upon me to write. Well, thank you for those kind words, Kat and uh, Luke, but uh, I assure you and all of the others who have written similar things that the privilege is all mine. And on top of that, uh, I'm no different from you or any of the other saloners. Basically, when I hear something interesting, whether it's a talk at a conference or a good story a friend is telling, my first impulse is to share it with my friends. And my guess is that that's what you want to do, too, so... Please keep in mind that all I am is uh, a carnival barker, (laughs) and all the action is in the tent. But uh, I do have a lot of fun helping people find a few of the ideas they've been searching for for a while. But ultimately, the only way any of us can thank any of the elders or great thinkers who have gone before us is to do the best that we can do to become a little more aware of the true nature of the magic that we're immersed in. You know, it's called the Earth Game, I think. And I also think we're about to advance to the next level. At least uh, that's what I think on my bright and positive days, of which this is one. And I hope that today is a bright and positive day for you as well. And if it isn't, if this hasn't been your best day, well, why don't you uh, try to find five minutes just before you drift off to sleep tonight and fantasize about your perfect day, your perfect life. Because, you know, without first having the thought, uh, well, reality doesn't know where to go next. So press on, my friend, press on. And before I go, I also want to mention that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are protected under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 2.5 license. And if you have any questions about that, you just click on the uh, Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And if you have any questions, complaints, comments, or suggestions about these podcasts, well, just send them to lorenzo at matrixmasters.com. A big thank you again to Chatul Hayuk for the use of your music here in the salon. And my love and thanks go out to my dear friend Gary Fisher for being so kind as to allow this small intrusion into his privacy. Thanks a million, Gary. I I really appreciate everything you've done for us, for all of us, your fellow humans. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. (laughs) 